Hello there. Uh, this is the inaugural Front of the Bus podcast. And today I'm sitting down with uh, an actor who I've admired for a long time. You will know him um, from the, the various parts. Probably the first part you would know him for is the part of Methadone Mick on Steel Game. Um, since then he's been in lots of things like Carnival Row, Line of Duty, Deadwater Fell, and recently White House Farm where he played Detective Mick Clark. Um, he's a really good actor, he's a really good guy, and he's got an immense talent, and I want to get deep, deep, deep into acting with him. So... You're about to hear my conversation that was recorded in a location somewhere in the suburbs of the no mean city Glasgow. Um, so you'll hear my voice and then you'll hear the voice of the phenomenal Scott Reed. That was the first voice you heard there was Scott saying it's 21 in a secret location. Um, straight in here, Scott, why acting? Because uh, I was, I don't know, like, I was young and my mum and dad sent me to like a, there was a youth theatre in Paisley, where it, so I went to that whilst I was playing football at the same time, you know, on a Saturday morning. Mm-hmm. And then I was doing that for years and years, kind of as from like 6 up to like 12, 13. Aye. Uh, and then I started kind of playing, I wasn't playing Saturday morning club football because um, my dad was working so I never really got into that until I was about second year of high school and then I had some trials professionally and that didn't really work out with professional clubs so I was like, my dad was like, you're doing too much, you need to either play football and go for that 100% Aye. or if you want to do acting no, I was a bit, I'd just been like go by, I'd just failed the pre-season uh, trials at Queen's Park, so I'd been there mm-hmm. for about two months, and they'd kind of said to me, eh, you're as good as what we've got. Aye. So my dad was like, what do you want to do? You know, you need to focus on one of them. So then I just was like, well, what do you think you've got more chance of succeeding at? And then I thought, well, I could go to drama school by the time I'm 17, all going well. And I was doing it quite regularly and doing shows and doing performances with Pace and stuff like that. Pace your theatre, so I just thought fuck it, and then it's kind of worked out for the worked out for the best. Also, I always thought actors had a better lifestyle anyway, than footballers. Aye, that's true. I mean, does when when you were kind of growing up and, and started to take acting seriously, was there anyone that you were kind of aspiring to or held in higher esteem? It was weird because my one of my first memories of. Um, a film, right? It's really, this is a weird one. Mm-hmm. My uncle bought me the videotape of uh, Austin Powers. Oh, right. Spidey shagged me, right? Uh-huh. And I just, I, I loved it because obviously he was, I didn't know this at the time, looking back and reflecting on it, he obviously plays loads of characters within that, right. loads of different voices. And I was chatty and imaginative when I was growing up. I used to tell stories, make up shit with my sister when we used to drive, drive to Spain and France and I'd, you know, create characters and basically make a book up on my head and she would just like keep asking me to keep doing it. Aye. So I don't, I, it's just, I don't know. I can't really remember what the, what was the question, what was the... Who did you look up oh, to? Who, oh, act, right, that's it. 
So I wouldn't say Mike Myers was somebody that I would ever like to admit that I looked up to. Aye. But I think it was just... Yeah. Great, thank you. Um, obviously, I don't, I don't know, it's weird. I, I, I never really had like an, an acting icon. Aye. But I always just had like the way things made you feel. So like my favourite, one of my favourite films is Monsters Inc. Mm-hmm. Because it makes you laugh, it makes you cry, it engages you, you it teaches you about family. You know, it's it, I know that's these are like stupid things. To, it's not like your traditional like I loved Robert aye, De Niro aye, aye, or I loved aye. you know Al Pacino. It was always about something how the way something made you feel. I really loved wrestling, so it was a kind of showmanship of like guys like The Rock, The Undertaker, the mm-hmm. the kind of spectacle of things. I kind of really really like. And then as I got older, and then you can have a more articulate understanding of what it is you like. Kind of guys like, maybe not so much now, but David Tennant, he did, a, just before I went to my drama school editions, he did play Hamlet in 2008 yeah, yeah. for the yeah. RSC. Yeah. And that really kind of stood out. Um, uh, you know, guys in Trainspot and Ewan McGregor, you know. You kind of look at these guys and you think, well, they're like, they're Scottish, they're like me. And, Obviously, as you get much older, you, you know, it kind of your span of actors goes a lot bigger than that. But it was always kind of more. It had to be tangible for me. So Aye. there was an actor at Pace, a guy called Alan Orr, who was like ten years old. He's like about thirty-two or thirty-three now. And when I was about twelve or thirteen, I was in a show, which we performed at the SECC in front of like ten thousand kids. Wow. Um, and they but they did it. It was like a thing called Choices for Life. And they would do like three days at the ACC, and then they do three day, two days up in Edinburgh, the Highland Centre, then up in Aberdeen, Eden Court, and, aye, aye. and it was like there was like live bands playing, and then like we pace would do this like thirty minute show, and I always remember it was like watching Alan do. He had this one particular moment where he would like shout, shut your mouth, Chantel, right, and then for me that was like that feeling of oh my god, that's. That's drama. Mm-hmm. That's like performance. Aye. I want to be doing what he's doing. So how do I get to do that? And then within about two or three years after that, I was playing the main part in that show in front of like ten thousand people. And so it wasn't. It was always something that was. I was probably a case, and if you do, you know, like if a young person sees a show, they're inspired by the show that they uh-huh. see, not uh-huh. by the thing that you. It was like a realistic. An yeah. achievable target. Achievable, aye, aye. Because so. obviously, I mean, you're a you're a working class guy. You're not. Um, you certainly weren't born with a silver spoon in your mouth or anything like that. Do you feel that because of that? Two two pointed question. First of all, it's harder to break through. But secondly, the training that you get through the theatre is so important. Yeah. Um, I think anybody who does anybody who uh, goes to drama school, right, regardless if you are. Not anybody, right? But class kind of, you kind of have to pretend and you kind of have to not really be yourself. Because when I was at drama school, I was working three jobs in second year, two jobs in third year. And I'm there with like really, really wonderful people who are very, who are privileged. And that's not a criticism, that's just a a fact. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, they they didn't have to work, they didn't have to go out, they couldn't understand, you know. I missed a lot of shows, like the other half of the year would be performing something and I wouldn't go and see that show. Well, it wasn't because I didn't want to go and see the show, it's because I was going to have to go work on TGI Friday's or work in a bar or something. Uh-huh, uh-huh. 
and they didn't really understand that. Um, but breaking through, I, I think, I think this is a really hard line. No, nobody ever really says it. I think some people just never break through because they're not. They either don't work hard enough mm-hmm. or the talent's not there. And actually, I think if you compare it to something like football, well, we're very open to say that person's not good enough to yeah, play. Yeah. For Celtic, that person's not good enough to make it into the Scotland setup. But in acting, we kind of don't. When people go through drama school and they come out for the first five years, people don't just say to them, "You're not good enough." Yeah. So everybody feels entitled, I suppose, I suppose because yeah. you're, they've had this theatre training. Yeah. And actually, once you do your, your, I think once you do your drama school training. That's you just at the beginning. You're not an actor yet. You're not a professional actor. You're a trained actor. Yeah. And a professional actor is something like I think it's like being a doctor. You don't really. You need. I've just done seven. It's like seven or eight years since I finished drama school. And I would say I'm just at a point where I kind of know what the fuck I'm doing, mm-hmm. or I'm confident enough to argue for something. And do you kind of get to know yourself better? Because you you know what you're doing more with acting. Yeah, I mean, I was uh, I, I started drama school, so seventeen. Two months after I turned seventeen, you know, I, I'd never really. I'd, my my mum's from Liverpool, so I had you know Scouse family, but I'd never really met anybody from like the southeast corner. Yeah. Or regularly hung about with people from America or New Zealand. Yeah. And all of a sudden, like, the, the guy I got on, one of the guys I got on base with at drama school was double my age, he was 34 and I'm Aye. 17 and he's had a full life and I'm literally a fucking teenager for, pay, teenager Aye. for Aye. days, like, who basically just wants to go out and party and have a good time and experience life, whereas these guys are, like, some of them have experienced a lot more than you. Yeah. And then also, like, dealing with class, I kind of got into a bit of some run-ins with people, because I would... I didn't really understand what the game was, playing playing the game, the yeah, acting yeah, game. Yeah. But I was doing it naturally. Because I, I understand to be an actor, you kind of had to be like a car salesman. And I got that very, very early on, and networking, and you had to have the gift of the gab. You're the product, right? And chat, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's You have to be able to push yourself in a room where nobody else feels confident enough to do that. Yeah. And that's the thing that I think I kind of understood early on and understood that it was a business and it wasn't like maybe not so much was it an arty farty experience and we're all lovey duffy and I've got to be best friends with everybody. I very learned very you know quickly there's, there's, there's a, a high chance that 90% of the people I'm in drama school with for three years aren't going to make it. So I need to do something to be myself and stand up because I've only got one chance and I've only got one life and already, although, although my, you know, my student, uh, you know, the, the cost of the yeah, drama school yeah, was covered, yeah. financially I'd already committed to, to stuff and like saying now, if I was to ever give up acting, I'm fucked because I, I couldn't do anything else. I've invested so much into it, I'd have to just sell the flat, sneak the dog on a plane, me and the missus and move to Thailand and just live in a, on a beach or somewhere. I was going to say, why you tap No, I mean, I think, sunny, you know, I, think I, I think you'll do yourself doing a bit there because, I mean, you're still a young man, you know, you're, you're, I'm sure you've got other talents, you know, that kind of thing, but 
what you're talking about Restaurant where, work. <laughs> there you go, eh? Food um, It took me a long time to realise when I was growing up that there were people out there with far better educations and far better schooling and postcodes and all that kind of thing. Um, and you seem to have grasped that quite quickly in the sense of the acting, unfortunately, just doesn't know about your talent. It's about how you promote yourself. And by that, I don't mean self-promotion on social media or reality shows. I mean, and being able to say the right things to the right people at the right time. Is that harder in Scotland with a kind of limited pool of jobs? I think. Anything in Scotland, Scotland's got like two communities, right? We've got this really like talented group of like theatre makers, mm-hmm. and we don't really have the equivalent of that on television yet, right? And actually, the theatre industry is like a kind of industry in its own. It's not, it's not like a little sister or a cousin of what happens down south. It's, it's, yeah, a, it's, yeah, a, yeah. it's kind of looks after itself. We've got our own theatre critics. We've got the same, you know, performances and kind of like it kind of takes care of itself. Mm-hmm. Whereas in, uh, in in like TV, you know, we literally just are um, we just get to, we just do, they, they do, we get told what to do and we, you know they tell us how to jump, how high, and there's no money anywhere. And even in the films, like we don't have a film studio yet. Yeah. You know what they've done with Outlander is fantastic. Yeah. That studio that they built up in Cumbernauld. Right. But. There's not, there's not a huge deal of opportunity. I mean, it's, it's funny you mentioned it, talking about Ward Park Studios. Uh-huh. Every time I come to Glasgow, I'll go past that. Yeah. I wonder how many people are actually even aware that that exists. Mm. You know what I mean? Because it's a pretty impressive building and so on, you know? Um, and it's, to, again, it's, I guess, like any part of the industry, it is a bit opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, now, obviously... <clears throat> your opportunities would have increased when you sort of came to the national um, scope with Methadone Mick. Um, tell us about how you actually got that part. Um, well, I was doing a, I was working quite regularly at, in Scottish theatre. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of, a, I would say for me, where I made my breakthrough. Yeah. Because I was working in good, the good theatres with good actors doing good shows. Yeah. Um, and then I was doing this play called The Choir, which um, the actor Paul Higgins, uh-huh. he was in the thick of it and stuff like that, and Ricky Ross, yep. they had wrote this musical about setting Wishaw, set about this community choir, and um, basically like in the theatre industry, Greg Hemphill's partner, Julie Wilson, the more, yeah, yeah. she's obviously heavily involved and she does quite a lot of shows and her friends are into the shows, and so they came and saw the show just by chance and Greg takes me, you know, maybe like four months later after seeing the show, saying, you know, we're thinking about things, still came back, and we've got this part, would you want to come and read it when it's ready? Uh And obviously I was like, is this a fucking wind up? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, because you're like, why would he send that to you? Obviously you know very quickly that you think it's it's a real opportunity, but also it's like, why why me? You know, I, I wasn't like... 
I wasn't one of these people who like had all the box sets and religiously watched them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember it being on in my granny's house of course, on yeah. a Friday night and watching it, you know, in See, the, the Hogwarts special. See, I think that's an important point. It's still game the first time we think finished in 2007. Uh-huh. So I'd have been, what, 13? Exactly. Yeah. Therefore, it's not yeah. going to be a staple of your life like it is for people with an older generation. No, but it was, it was very much like... Uh, you know, I remember that being on, I remember tuning it back, and I remember on my granny's masonette, and Kenny said, I remember it, you yeah, know, and I remember yeah, it called yeah. Monet, and it's something that I do remember. Um, so you know how big, how, how important it is, and culturally, but did I, you know, I never really thought at that point, my opinions about, say, like Ford and Greg as artists, yeah. it was nowhere near where it is now. Right. I totally... Didn't, like you know that we I just thought they were two guys who did this thing and, and actually when you see what they do and you know you meet them and how great their minds are creatively it's yeah, like yeah. we don't do enough to pick them up actually like we don't as probably Scottish people do like we don't actually celebrate real talent yeah you know because it's great we love small game but actually it's, it's more than that it's not just these yeah. characters it's like these creative creative minds I mean I think that um, <clears throat> if you take a an English example we a sitcom like Home Fools and Horses they said that when it was really funny and all that great when it became a national treasure is when it made people laugh and cry yeah. and that's what still game Ford and Greg achieved yeah through the, yeah exactly and it does kind of I suppose it does it staggers me that they didn't do loads of other stuff and no. that the people only fall over themselves to offer them stuff well, that's or the, that's money the, to that, do stuff that's you know? the thing is it's like you know, here it's like, well, you've done that, well, you, we'll give somebody else an opportunity now. Yeah. Instead of going, right, well, what do you guys want to do? You have the power, go and, yeah. you, know, you know, do that. But it's hard, I think you see, like, even, you know, it's sad, it's sad to see, like, you know, the, the new BBC Scotland channel, it's, it's really struggling, and the yeah. viewing numbers are terrible, and people aren't watching it, and, and you're like, well, you know, they've made an effort, they've went for it in a good sense. Yeah. The content they're making is not good enough. So, it's not, it's not. so it's like, why, why would people watch? And you feel for people because people are going to lose their jobs, and it's going to eventually be cut away. And I mean, especially I think, and I'm just guessing here, but the competition for the viewing figures now is astronomical. The highest it's ever been. Yeah. You can turn on, you know, Amazon Prime and watch Al Pacino in a show. You can watch, you know a million documentaries on Netflix or that if you're not going to come close to that on a new channel nobody's got to watch it but they might have the channel is well, it, you yeah, know, that's, that's the thing is it's like why you know I, I agree with that point like I mean we very rarely you know I struggle even to watch like Sky Atlantic series new stuff you wouldn't even put any of that new drama on because you've just got so much material to, you know, we just watched like four limited series crime documentaries on Netflix yeah. over the, like the space of two weeks. Yeah. You know, and they're mind-blowing. You know, they have, yeah. you have, the, you have, you're, you're sick, like we watched the thing about um, the, the wee boy who was murdered by his family in LA. Oh, the boy yeah, yeah, Gabriel yeah. Hernandez. Hernandez, yeah. Hernandez, yeah. and like, Sobbing in the house, sitting, yeah. wailing and yeah. crying. I know. I and, just, uh, and it's like, well, why would you go on and then watch this guy you've never heard of travel the coasts of Scotland <laughs> or watch Michael Bertillo on a train? That's my biggest bugbear in television. Why do people think that we want to watch a celebrity go to Outer Mongolia <laughs> or South America or whatever? I didn't get it. No. I've never understood it. But 
the next question I'm going to ask you, and I know you're going to say, no, I didn't, but I'm going to say this now because I know everybody's going to say it. How do you get to the point of, you get the part for still game, and it's an established show, we established characters, and then basically you tear it up. You become the iconic character in the show. Uh, well, for that, just that season, I would say, because then, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know, like, it's, I'd say it's all to do with Fogg and Greg, really. Because they, you know, they write it, mm-hmm. they envisage this guy, they gave me an opportunity and I put my spin on it, but very much like, we worked on things together, like the laugh, that, that mm-hmm. was probably the only thing that I really brought to the, the table. Really, yeah. Like, they, it was very unclear and it wasn't scripted in the laugh. At first, it wasn't really there, mm-hmm. and then obviously, then the next season, and then the next season, and then the live shows, they they then had the, I gave them that gun to use, you know, that ammo. Aye. Um, but you know, yeah. Um, so, but I think basically, yeah. I mean, it's it's obviously nice for me. You just want to be good in the show, mm-hmm. so that's your you know your attack from it. You want yeah. people to think you're you're good and right. you want people to laugh and you want people to find you funny but I never really had any of this concern like people were going you know it's a big, the biggest show in Scotland it wasn't really like that mm-hmm. for me it was just always like once Gordon Greg had offered me the, sh- the job I had to then go in and actually and I got a call like a week later from my agency saying oh yeah you've got an audition on Monday for Methro Mick so I had to go into the BBC and meet the executive producer and the director mm-hmm. Where I'd, I'd, I'd been in Greg's living room reading the script, being offered the part. So you felt like you could always lose it. Yeah. And I think that that's, for me, we went in and we did this, the, the read through. I was only a little bit, you basically, it was over three days. So the first day you did episode one and two, the second day, three and four, the uh, third day, five and six. And I went in the first day and I, I didn't really, I wasn't in episode one, did a couple of lines in episode two. And then at the end of the day, like the director kind of gave me some notes. Try, still try to find the voice, still try to find what it was. And I went in there the next day and I did something like completely different. Mm-hmm. Like, the, like you know, it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't slow, it was kind of like high pitched. It was kind of like really low pitched, but like, like he was on smack or like, you know, mm-hmm. cocaine or something like really, really fast. And, and Ford and Greg put me to the side and they were like, what the hell are you doing? And I was like, uh, well, it was the director who told me to do it and then for about an hour and a half after two hours I'm just thinking that's me they're just going to sack me uh-huh. you know it's, I'm not doing it right not, you know and then obviously Michael Hines he told me uh-huh. he was like listen I've obviously gave you a bum steer just go back to do what you were doing <laughs> went back in the next day you know but everybody's because everybody's judging you because you know all the cast they're like what the fuck is this guy doing because it yeah. sounds terrible I knew it sounded terrible so you know that way when when something's bad, it's very hard to hide it in acting. Yeah, yeah. It's bad acting, it's bad acting. But I think that that fear of losing the job, that is, that's always, always with me. Like, I always think this... I mean, I could go through nearly every telly job and I've nearly lost the job. See, I think, whilst I think that will surprise people, I also think that it is a very common thing that in this industry, there's a lot of insecurity and um, there's also... Like we've talked about it before, off air, that um, people assume that you, you, you go to the still game, you do a few episodes, and suddenly you're a millionaire with a big house and all the rest of it, and your jobs just fly at you. And that's not the case at no. all. You know what I mean? 
Um, but I remember, like, the, I think the first time you, you appeared on the screen still game was Peter J.K. had died uh-huh. and you'd left a note. And uh, the McDonald's bag or something. Like that's that. right. And yes. what I was interested in was that the comparison, the character definitely grew from that first take into, and obviously we can get with the teeth, which I know is a bony contention probably with yourself. But it was interesting how that character quickly became a staple of the show. Yeah. Especially when, for somebody in my age, who's watched these same characters all the time, then there becomes another one. Does that come with an acceptance from the other cast members as well, or are they just kind of doing what they do anyway? No, it's really up. Like the thing is, with I mean, you never. It, it was weird because you know I, I absolutely adore Ford and Greg. Aye. I adore. I think they're brilliant as people, and I love them a bit. But. Them individually, when you're not at work, are very, very different people from when the yeah. two of them are together on set, writing yeah. and you know collaborating. And actually, like they're very, they're such strong personalities because mm-hmm. they really richly, uh, yeah, you know, um, help each other out. You know, basically, like if Ford does something there that's kind of not really working in a certain way, Greg will use another tactic and mm-hmm. get, they'll always get what they kind of always get what they want, and that end result. So I think for me it was always just like if they wanted them in the show, if they want something in the show, it's happening. You know, nobody was. It, it's kind of like nobody was ever safe. Yeah. You know, because especially when um, Eric, his character, Aye. you know, he got killed off in the yeah. show. Well, that was just because the you know the guy who played Eric, he was just an old man, and he Aye. was you know you know it was a lot for him to fly uh, to travel through from Edinburgh every day. Aye. You know, Jimmy McGovern, um, Jimmy or Martin, Jimmy Martin. Aye. Uh, and you know and basically like every series there was always a thing like you know you might not be back or your storyline might not be as rich and that, of course I would never come on and, you know, and criticise any of the, anybody who on Still Game or any of the guys because it's been their life yeah. and for me it wasn't really it was a job for me mm-hmm. and a special job but by the time I was doing the first when I did the first season as I was filming that I, I booked Line of Duty yeah and, but I already knew that I was doing uh, a play for the National. I was doing the Curious Incident and the Dogman Night thing, doing that tour. So I already had that booked in. It was a very amazing, it, like, it was a very rare position for an actor to know what they're doing till like, the following September. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and, I, and, and that, was, that was in the June, right? The uh, June of 2017. And I knew I'd work up to 2017 in the September the following yeah. year. Aye. But then when they came back to try and get me to come in for season eight, I, they had to work around me because I was filming it. I was doing the play in Aberdeen and in Glasgow. Right. So they had six weeks worth of filming. They had to limit what I was in in the scripts to make it fit. To a two because week, I think you told me before you, would be, you were going to be a lot more prominent in the script. Well, I mean, you've been you, totally available. You, you think so? I mean, that, that's what you were told. I mean, you can always, you know, maybe that's just. Aye, aye, I, 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 you know, somebody could have said that to me. It made me feel special. I bought me up, but you know, you you feel like if I was available and around at that point. It maybe would have been more episodes than what I was, but and that was definitely the case for the final series. I was away filming something else, so um, I was doing. I think I was doing. Uh, I was doing White House Farm, mm-hmm. and that was a really difficult decision because I was waiting to, waiting for both of the jobs to confirm, yeah. and basically not, neither of them confirmed with me that it was happening. They yeah. were both trying to be, you know, this is from a producer's point of view, like yeah. finances and contracts, and nothing was getting secured. 
and then Whitehouse Farm came off first. So I was like, well, as long as I can do one episode or whatever of the final season, I'd be happy with that. Yeah. And that's, you know, and Ford and, see, this is what I'm saying, Ford and Greg, they've completely supported me and everything. They know that, you know, I'm at the beginning of my journey and for them, they were curtailing that, you know, it was coming to its end. Aye. So they, they were like, you know, I get, I'm regularly speak to the two of them regularly talking about choice you know what's the best plan for me to take what jobs should I be thinking about yeah. and you know I've basically got like two really really good friends but mentors as well and that's a really not a lot of people uh, have that I mean I, I hope you didn't mind me saying but you said to me before that Ford especially was a wee bit like a surrogate feeder of yours <laughs> phoning you up and seeing how you are and all that kind of thing basically like pestering me like what you uh, doing what you up to uh, and then you know when you know, when you, it's like when I don't see Ford for like a couple of weeks or a couple of months and then we see each other, I just, it's like, it's like you don't, you never, you're never a part of you know, aye, and aye. when we were doing the Hydro show, it was amazing, like just watching, I was in awe of the two of them at the Hydro show, especially like, uh, the, you know, Ford would go and they would, you know, doing the bit from chewing the fat and, you know, doing the actor and all that, it's just brilliant, you know. I mean, in the Hydro show, I mean, some people want to be, be aware. Can you tell people what part you played in the Hydro show? Uh, well, yeah, I played the the characters were in Limbo, uh-huh. and then they went up to heaven, and some Aye. of them went to hell, and then I was in their head, the characters' personification of Jesus. So Method, Method Old Mick was the was the characters of Craig, the Craig Lang residence. Aye. Personification of, of Jesus and Karen Dunbar, <laughs> her Betty character from Tune the Fat was Aye. the personification of, of God. Um, so I, it was not, it was crazy, but at the same time, uh, that was a real, I felt like I, I kind of got the best of both worlds. I, was, I wasn't in the show for a long period of time, it was only like five, ten minutes. I got to come in, drop a bomb, and then. Aye, exactly, that's off. exactly what you did. And uh, you talked about Line of Duty, and I said to you before that the part that you played in that, to me, it was reminding me of Daniel Mays in the Red Riding trilogy, where he's kind of framed for a lot of dodgier stuff that's going on. I mean, the side of you that came out there was, how do you get to that place? You've got a different accent, you're playing somebody with a limited brain vocabulary. How do you get to that place? I don't, it's, it's tricky, it's like, first of all, like, I'm not really one of these, every, every actor has like a different process, I wouldn't say I'm one of these actors who has to create a backstory or has to create, like, mm-hmm. yeah. know what happened before, knows what happens in between the scenes, it's, it, it, for me, it's all about what's in the, the script, so the, regularly through the point I would be having conversations going, right, well, episode four, five and six hadn't been written yet. So they didn't know which way it was going to go. Aye, aye. I didn't know where it was going. The actors who I was working with, they didn't know where it was going. So I couldn't, you know, I didn't know if I was, say, guilty or not guilty. Yeah, so yeah. you had to then play the scenes. You know, you'd have very kind of rich dialogue and you'd say, I'm going to either, I'm going to either play this scene as like I'm guilty and I know I've done it not guilty yeah. have no idea what you're talking about and you'd kind of have to do that yourself and you know try out things but also I was very like you know my mum and dad had just started um, fostering at yeah, that time yeah, yeah. becoming foster parents so they talked a lot about that kind of um, 
if a ch child between like zero and two really doesn't experience like real love and security yeah, at that absolutely. point, then their attachment issues, um, they, they kind of struggle to really have what yeah. you, what I might a, a kind of normal upbringing would give you, like which is that ability to create loving relationships. So I kind of just put that neglect in somebody who had never experienced that, and maybe that social neglect left him alone and very you know dis disconnected and disjointed. So makes it quite easy like things that you would do like maybe not necessarily listen to the actor as much as yeah. what they're doing you know zone out focus on certain like this is like you know what i was doing in the scenes like focus on the handcuffs mm -hmm. looking about where am i like winding yourself up because you know if you put yourself into that frame of mind i don't know what so the character i don't know why i'm here i don't know what i'm doing here mm -hmm. why am i attached to this table why am i in these places? hey Hey, Rue. That was Scott's dog, Rue, just interjecting. Did you think Daddy's talking crap? <laughs> hey, no barking. Chill out. Good girl. Aye, so it's like, it's one of those, one of those things. Does that make sense? Yeah, because I, I tell you, the other thing that it reminded me of, and I'm not even sure about the timeline of this, but in uh, Making a Murderer, yeah. thing, the it guy Brendan Dassey, he had yeah. that whole thing, why am I here, I'm not really sure what's going on and can I get him to watch the rest of them on TV? Okay, no idea the enormity though. It, it just um, it just came out making a murder, yeah. I think, at the time when that season came out and there was, that was very much like a conversation, but I think that was something that they were interested in, but also I was like, I didn't want to just do like a direct kind of copy of what that was or anything like that. Yeah. You know, we still don't necessarily know the truth of yeah, what happened yeah, with yeah. Brendan Dassey, so we don't really necessarily yeah. know the full ins and outs. Whereas yeah. we were, we're very after six weeks of watching the program, you can kind of find out what happened to that character, Michael Farmer. Aye, that's you know, this, right. this, right. you know, there's still things in that that might not be everything, might not be as it is. You know, what I'm saying, I mean, you know, it might not definitely how, how they manipulated him in that interview. That was wrong, but he might know something about what yeah, happened to that girl. Absolutely, you know, absolutely. You don't know. Um, you mentioned White House Farm, which I was an enormous fan of, partly because <clears throat> it's a true story. Yeah. Um, partly because, like yourself, great actors in it. Um, and I wonder what it's like to then move on to a level where you're working with guys, Hollywood actors, you know, done big movies and all that, Stephen Graham's Mark Addy's and that kind of thing. Can you get opportunities to kind of pick things off of them? I mean, that's literally all you do, just mm -hmm. sitting. I mean, again, I'm, I'm, I kind of pride myself on being a pain in the arse. I've got loads of energy. My job there is like, you know, I mean, so, you know, that you're, you're supporting. Uh, Are you guys anything else to say? Thanks. Okay. Thank you, David. Um, and basically, like my job is like you're supporting your like as the young detective, you're supporting your superior older detective, and you already know that people don't really support what he's going through. So for me, the actor, all you do is you just back up Mark Addy all the time. You're there yeah. to try and create that, you know. And I was very lucky that Mark Addy is a gem of a boat yeah. and was interested in building a connection with me and being a pal and going to the pub after and spending time together. Because some actors aren't like that. Yeah. But we, our friendship and bond on screen was real. Yeah, you could see that. You know, 
I mean, what, what really fascinated me about your character was the fact that he, to begin with, he was a kind of peripheral character, and you assumed, well, I assumed from the first episode that Stephen Graham's character was going to be the main dude. But just ever so slightly, your character starts to grow through each episode, and therefore your kind of personality comes into it as the character. But it's not a true in the scenery type of character. It's no. a very subtle character. But he's also someone who is shrewd enough to actually step back and go, because I think people need to understand this is the 80s. The police force is a different animal yeah, yeah, yeah. then. And we talked about it and stuff. Like, we talked about, you know, how, um, basically how systematic it was and yeah, actually yeah. Like, the aim to get to the top. Yeah. It was, I was lucky, like, my granddad was a policeman in Liverpool in the yeah. 60s, 70s and 80s. Uh, and, you know, he kind of... That's what I went in my audition and was talking about, you know, yeah. I actually know that it's, it's basically like the police force is just a big ladder. Yeah. And if you play the game right, you will yeah. eventually get up that ladder. And actually, what the character in real life, obviously he's an amalgamation of a few different yes. people, Mick Clark, but uh-huh. it was very much like the way that it was written is that he was putting his career kind of on the line as well, such a right. young age, you know, to support this guy who's seen as like the kind of maverick arsehole, yeah. who's not just kind of fallen into, and into the line. Who are, you're getting the piss stripped to them every day in the station. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I think it's one of the things where everybody assumes, oh, oh, I would do that, I would do the right thing. But in that climate, no. in the 1980s, where, as we found out, there was institutional racism, there was all sorts of corruption, there was people going to jail that never done anything. Uh-huh. And you've got a you know top man uh, played by Stephen Graham basically saying it's a murder suicide and that's fucking it, right? We're not, we're not interested in anything else you've got to say. It takes balls to then stand up and, to the tide and go, no, I'm not fucking accepting that. But the th- like even when he went up, you know, he went above to Stephen Graham's character's mm. head, and then he actually gave him all the evidence. He just said, "How dare you go above your Aye. superior officer? I don't care what it is. You're, mm-hmm. you're, that's not how we play this game." Yeah, and I think that that's. You know, there's the the thing about White House Farm is that it's obviously this is the 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 program is obviously just like a dramatic um, valuation of the facts and figures that they had. Yeah. And it was obviously used like a no thanks. Basically, like they were just looking at you know that was the story that they wanted to tell, and obviously it's a, a dramatization of, yeah. of, of you know. So again, it's one of those things who will we ever really know what happened that night yeah. in White House Farm and that's obviously their, the side that they wanted to pick. But for me, it was just, I, I get, you know, I was literally getting to play cops and robbers. Mm-hmm. I was getting to go and be a detective and I loved, like, I created like a playlist. Because I'm pure into my music, so I was like, what was like the week of the murders? What was like the top 30? Right. What would you be hearing on the radio? And, and I was just like, every, you know, like the week of the trial, I'd be going in, I'd be like sitting, you know, in between takes, like, this is, like, the number one, you know, I mean, it's, like, my donor, you know, and people are like, turn that shit up, you know, and I was just, like, but I was just obsessed with, like, the world, because, like, I was, like, this guy's, like, you know, mid-twenties, he's a detective, he's probably going out the weekend and going clubbing, and he's seen, like, a nightclub there, he's probably, you know, he's still, like, a young guy with a life, and I was really interested in trying to bring as much of that, like, because people are never just one thing, you're, never, you're not just like an actor, you're also like, you know, you're like a football fan, you're a dog owner, you're, you know, a music lover, you know. It's, there's always something else to it, a lot of people, and I think good actors are they always, they've always got like their, their hand yeah. in another thing, they're always messing about with something because it makes them, 
takes I mean, it's <clears throat> one of the things I'd seen recently was um, Al Pacino was talking about the, the Irishman, and he said that the thing that he liked working about with Bob De Niro more than anything was that if he brought something into the dialogue or a quirk or something like that, De Niro wouldn't stop and go, oh, wait a minute, is, is, is he going to do this every time or anything like that? He would just go with it. Is that, are they the kind of best actors to work with, the ones who will just maintain character no matter what you do? I mean, like, it saves a hell of a lot of time if they're capable enough just to go with the flow. Mm-hmm. Um, because sometimes when you're on, like, what will De Niro and Apuccino do together is very, like, that's, let's not get me wrong, like, these are years of experienced fucking actors doing yeah. what they do, and yeah. the setup and the time, they're probably covered by two or three camera angles, mm-hmm. they've got all the time in the world, if they want to do that scene, if they want to spend an extra day on that scene, nobody's arguing with them. If I'm in a scene with two other people and we've got, you know, you're doing nine scenes that day, you can't really fuck about because yeah, you just yeah. don't have the time because the, the money's not there. So good actors are the ones who can give you a couple of good takes and then the last couple of ones throw in something. So, for instance, White House Farm, the Laurel and Hardy stuff. Yeah, that's all. That brilliant. That was all improvised. That was brilliant. Stephen Graham improvised that when we were right. sitting at the big table. The first time he says, "You Laurel, you stay here, Hardy, you're with me." That was improvised. And then the next scene, then we then later on that like. The following week, he was in the room, and the director was like, "We think we're, we think we're going to put up a picture of one of this, you know, Laurel Hardy in a newspaper article. Uh, uh, I think we're going to put it on the window of a scene because we like this idea." So then he improvised the whistle tune, and, uh, and it was that was a really organic, you know, natural process. But stuff like that, you know, like I was just I've just been doing before Christmas. I was doing a war film, yeah. and basically. A hell of a lot of that's improvised right. from you've got your basic structure of the scene. You know, like certain like five there was like a scene written with like five or six lines and then the rest of it is too thin to be a scene. Yeah, so yeah. the actors create something or you add things and you know that's but yeah. And actors are maybe not as intelligent or switched on or concentrated. They're sometimes a bit of a pain in the ass to work with because they're they're not on the ball. Yeah. And if you're not on the ball well then, it, you know, the, the plate, it's basically like spinning, spinning plates, and if one of the plates smashes, you have to stop, pick yeah. it up and start again, and that's, that is frustrating. When I, see, when I seen and heard the Lauren Hardy stuff, I thought, I bet it's like, fuck, Steve Coogan's just beat me to the fucking wall by about a year. Because it, it's one of the ones where, it, until he said it, I've never thought of it, uh-huh. and as soon as he said it, I was like, he could be Stan Laurel, like, he could play that role. <laughs> but it's like, it was, um, I don't know, like, you know, if I'm being honest, if I got anything, I, I would just like to work with Mark again. Yeah. And I, I mean, I'd, I'd love to do, like, the two of us be, uh, have our own cop show. I'd, 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 what it'd be a laugh and two, oh, it, would yeah. be, it would be fun, you know, just... I mean, he's brilliant. I mean, you know, people sort of, of my generation probably remember him from the film Monty and yeah. then Fred Flintstone and things like that. But again, Robin back, Hood, Robin uh, Hood, yeah. I mean, huge roles. I mean, but I remember him, he's similar role in the Red Riding trilogy when he came in and basically scooped everything up um, and I just thought you know the way the way that he and you interacted does that if you were to both go for something in the future do you think that helps the fact that you work together already uh, I don't know I, 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 I mean I would like to think it does mm-hmm. but then that means you've got to have complete belief that 
people at the top producers yeah. do their homework and is casting it, people do their homework something I've been sort of made aware of is that there's a lot of actors who will and you can see it in their movies there's always the same background actors in it because they've managed to get them in are you ever approached by people who say can then you get so and so as well or never not not at all no I've got a, it's very I think like the you know it's, it's basically getting a job's really fucking hard let alone getting mm. anybody else yeah, a job yeah, so yeah. I think basically when you go and I'd like to be, I, I don't really think that down south I'm in, in or even up here I'm at a level where I could make demands for anything I'm not playing I'm not getting lead parts I'm not the, I'm not near the top of the call sheet you know yeah. and you're not anywhere near making these you know decisions or being having, a, having even the ability to influence anything you just yeah. you're there to turn up say your lines and fuck off really mm-hmm. and I'd say for me the aim is always it's not about being a person of influence it's about it's maintaining the level of work on good projects yeah. and if I can kind of build a life and a career from that then that would be really really fulfilling I would like it maybe to stop being so difficult all the time and maybe have a bit more secu- like get a regular series you know that would probably be quite nice to know what you're doing every year but at the same time it's I've been really lucky like some of the shows that I've been a part of some of the actors I've got to work with so early in my career yeah you know people I can kind of now call friends mm-hmm. it's very you know I'm, I'm very very fortunate and very lucky you know I mean I think that is it's something that I experienced on a different level obviously when I've done documentaries is that they always ended with a premiere and that premiere with have 400 people there and everything great fantastic and then the next t- time you went to your documentary you started back at day one yeah no money no support basic idea and you're like why doesn't this get fucking easier yeah no. <laughs> you know what I mean and actually like the thing is it's like the actors are the master or good actors are masters of humility because you're never really ever the, the, the most important person in the room although people might make that assumption yeah. that you are you're never you're never at all you know and actually if you look at it like when you're on set you know you might see photos of you know people holding umbrellas over an actor yeah. well it's not it get anything to do with the person being warm yeah. it's about maintaining that the costume's dry the yeah. hair and yeah. the makeup stays the same because all that stuff is time and money yeah. and actually the actor's a commodity and if it's not working out well we'll just replace that actor and get another one because there's another person who could do it yeah. and I think when you when you really really remember that well you you have to it makes you stay humble and you've got to be nice to everybody and you can't be a dickhead yeah. because I think you get the guy you know top level Tom Cruise 20 million dollars a movie whatever I think people don't understand that they're not really paying him 20 million dollars to act it's the promotion and the name and mm-hmm. everything that goes with it if they can get him guaranteed in a film then that means there's a certain amount of cinema yeah. tickets being sold yeah. and actually like that's it's like you know at the end of the day when you're sitting in a green room with somebody you're, you're the same person yeah. you know whatever you're doing you're sitting in a car going from the location and if you've got a massive trailer and I've got a wee trailer well, if me and you are doing a scene together, you bet your bottom dollar me and you are in the same car going to the set. <laughs> and if there's only one toilet on your location, we're the same. We're using the same toilets. Yeah. You know, or, or we're eating the same food, or you know, it's we're breathing the same air. So there is, it's like I 
don't, I don't think anybody is worth a bottom. You know, good actors are the best, or the most high profile actors. In the UK, I'd say they're really, really nice people. I work with a kind of, you know, without naming names, a few who are a bit precious, but yeah. they're because they're right at like the very top, mm-hmm. and they have no privacy, and no, they're not normal people anymore. Yeah, yeah. Like you know, they're not. They kind of just walk to the shops and no get bothered. They get Aye. bothered everywhere they go. Aye. And I mean, that's happened to you probably not on the same level, but I mean, what? how do you deal with that? Yeah, I mean, like for me, it's like when I, um, the most surreal moment was when I actually, when I played at the, the Celtic, uh, the, the most legend, yes, Henrik Zeros, and um, nobody told, basically like the staff probably didn't know who I was, right? So all like, the ex-players, they were walking out the back door, into the, the bus to go to like the next location. Aye, aye. So me and like sister and my brother-in-law, like we just walked out the front door of Celtic Park because it's like how many times you get to do that as well? Do you know what I mean? After you played there, so I just was like, "Fuck this!" I'm over the front door, and then obviously I just was like surrounded by like you know it must have been about like 500, 600 people like around me, like really like aggressively wanting Camera pictures and all, all that, and I'd never obviously like, but my sister was in there with me. And she's just like, I remember she was just like, nobody will ever build, like, this is like a moment, like, it's unbelievable. Like, my brother-in-law is like six foot five, and he was just like pushing people away, and <laughs> running to the bus. I felt like I was a beetle. Do you know well, that? Like, you know, and it was nice. Nice. That was, and then that's probably like, once that happens to you, know, three people in the street coming up and wanting a photo, you're just like, it's no problem at all. But I'll always remember that, because it was like, in my head, I was a Celtic football player. So that's, you know, that was what I was, that's probably what made that such a get much better than that. I mean, before we wrap up, we'll touch on Celtic. I mean, happy everything that's going on, Celtic, Lennon um, and all that. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm really, I'm, you know, I, I think the, the kind of core of the team's good. I think, uh, again, the transfer activities may be a little bit frustrating, or yeah, the lack yeah, of activity yeah. is frustrating. Um, I think we're kind of, although people talking about the progression of, Winning the Europa League group for me doesn't really matter how we get through that group uh, if we still fall at the, yeah. the same hurdle. Uh-huh. It, it's not a real level of progression, uh, you know, uh, for me. Uh, domestically, I think you know we're excellent. I think to be able to, I don't, we might not be like in form, but still churning out results. And I think that actually that's what we need to just do and get through this period of time. Is if it's by churning out results and you know so so be it. I would like to see some of like the more youngsters getting an opportunity instead of some you know some of the boys that yeah. were playing at the time you know especially at the back um, and even like the boys fed we spent a lot of money on him and he's not really appeared right. and, and, and it's frustrating but I understand that Lennon's a very loyal man it, and that comes from being a, probably a player he's basically said these guys are in training every week I'm not just going to surpass yeah. them by playing a younger guy or somebody who's not been on the bench and I kind of commend that. That's something that I really like about Lennon as a yeah. manager. Um, but like for, as of for like Scott Brown, I just can't. When are they going to build the guy a statue, man? Because he's <laughs> he he is like my he is my yeah. le- living legend. Like he's the. Yeah. Oh, I remember like you know, I was ni- ninety three. I was born, so I kind of remember just the end of the nine row. Yeah. You know the, the team that stopped the ten and smelled the glove and. You know, into that progression, you've got players like Larson and obviously Petrov and that, you know, Johan Mialbe, those players, you know, Bobo Baldi, you know, 
Mm -hmm. But for me, like this is obviously like my as an ad as a young adult. Is it ending your teenage years into like your yeah. early yeah. adulthood? Like you remember these moments, and uh, you know you remember the, the Barcelona game, and, you know even the AC Milan game, and, you know with D Dad rolling about, and you know you remember those big Champions League moments, and hopefully I get to go and do what a lot of my family did and go to Seville, Seville and, you know, and that's I was too young for that, and uh, it was you know I, I would probably do anything to go and. Experience a European Cup final with Celtic. Absolutely. I mean, I think <clears throat> this season has proved, although the Copenhagen game is horrendous, that it's not that far out of grasp. No. You know what I mean? It's not. Um, you've only got to look at you know certain other team the way they've progressed in it. That you know, I would maybe argue that if we hadn't spent six million pounds on the two guys in the, in the January and bought a centre half, we might still be in it. Yeah, so, I mean the boy Clamani uh, doesn't really. No. But then again, I I, I was on the Celtic fan TV after like the first league game of the season I think it was the first time they'd done it and I said that Ryan Christie didn't have enough to be a Celtic player and so basically he went and halfway <laughs> proved, me, proved, proved uh, me wrong but it's I mean obviously like for me until we kind of get a bit more like Champions League football is a must and actually for us to kind of believe the hype of ourselves and say that we're a big club we need to do whatever it takes to get there every year, yeah. and I and I don't know how many times we need to struggle through these qualifiers and not have enough players oh, available. It's a joke, you know. Before it's um, it becomes yeah, it becomes a wee bit like seeing the same B movie over and over again, and you kind of know how it's going to end, you know. But on the subject then, and we'll end this now because this is a certain theme. You talked about um, the glass ceiling, and I yeah. think that you're really punching that glass ceiling hard right now, cracking it. What would be your advice to someone starting out? Scotland in the acting game right now yeah um, start putting body lotion on to make your skin really thick and secure oh, is that why yeah. you're looking so tender um, because it's like no you've got basically there's a hell of a lot of rejection and yeah. there's a hell of a lot of probably maybe it's, I don't know if this is an, you know I, I've only got to this point in my life the, the first time like I was a teenager starting out very confident loads of self-belief yeah. and then you get through your mid-twenties and things are going good but then when it gets older you start becoming insecure and you worry that things might never work out but mm -hmm. I think you've got to just put yourself in a position work hard and then yeah just be really fucking diligent that's probably the best thing if you want it work for it and be diligent and make sure nobody works harder than you perfect can I ask for more than that thanks for listening